you know, so you would look at those types of, of, of um, comparisons just to see, are you treating a one group of employees differently than you're treating a group of employees, say, within a protected class? Do they Are these group of employees that are treated differently, are they all part of the same class? You're listening to the Legal Skinny Podcast with Trisha Burita. I'm a 16-year licensed practicing attorney in the state of Texas. I created Legal Skinny because when I've been invited to do educational seminars on different subjects in employment law and leadership topics, company leaders like CEOs, managers, and HR professionals would often ask me where can they find a little more information on this and a little more information on that. Look, I get it. There's a lot of resources out there. But sometimes it's confusing and people are so busy. Sometimes people only have 30 or 15 or maybe even five minutes in their day to devote to learning something new. On this podcast, you'll hear me have discussions and interviews on topics relevant to company leaders. Disclaimer though, Legal Skitty is for entertainment and informational purposes only, not meant to provide legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Also remember, laws change or they differ by jurisdiction. So this is not a substitute for seeking legal counsel in your jurisdiction on the current law applicable to you. Today, my guest is both a friend and colleague, Karina Lemons. Karina is the managing partner of the Lemons Law Firm in North Carolina. She's a wealth of knowledge in various areas, including employment law. She also gives a fresh perspective. If you've ever wanted to hear what an attorney that represents the employee may think about how the employer handles certain situations. Since my topic is discrimination and implicit bias training, I wanted to chat with Karina to discuss issues facing employers as they navigate this multi-layered issues of discrimination and training in the workplace. Karina has been a guest on the podcast before, and as always, she brings a great thoughtfulness to a subject matter that has often been and continues to be on the minds of company leaders. So I hope you enjoy this Legal Skinny episode, Discrimination and Implicit Bias Training in the Workplace. Welcome back to the Legal Skinny podcast. Karina, it's so great to have you here again. I'm happy to be here, Trisha. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Oh, yeah. And so for any of the listeners that uh, did not catch the podcast that we did previously, it's episode number 27. And uh, Karina and I were trying to get a job as a lawyer, um, party company planners. party planners. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently they did not like our, uh, I didn't get any calls, Karina. Uh, did you get oh, any calls to plan parties? <laughs> I did not, unfortunately. <laughs> but it is a good discussion if you want to hear what two lawyers think about uh, um planning the company party, liability and sexual harassment and all kinds of interesting stuff that comes up with that, that, um, you know, that employment uh, background attorneys would think of. And we talked a little personal injury uh, issues and alcohol. It was all good, right? Absolutely. We had a lot of fun. We did have a lot of fun. So, uh, but we're back here to discuss something totally different uh, than that. Um, 
well, somewhat different. We're certainly not going to be going into sexual harassment. We're going to talk a little bit about discrimination, implicit bias training in the workplace, and you know, which is obviously a very hot topic right now. Uh, before we get into all of that, you know, some of my uh, listeners may have not heard uh, the episode number twenty-seven. So, can you give them a background where you're at? I didn't even, I didn't even tell them that you're not here in Texas with me. I am not. Uh, my husband is actually from Texas, but I am based out of Durham, North Carolina. I've been here practicing law for nineteen over nineteen years. I practice primarily in the areas of employment discrimination bankruptcy and entertainment law. And the majority of the work that I do is in federal court, but occasionally we'll file in state court. And we do um, have represented some employers before the EEOC and the Department of Labor. But mostly yeah. I represent plaintiffs, the employees. Yep. That's why I brought her on here. So, uh, so uh, <laughs> all of you can hear what it sounds like uh, when, you know, an employee goes to a lawyer and asks those questions and, and what the lawyer's thinking. And uh, with that, you know, I, I think like you and I had talked about this offline, like the first place to start is for, to discuss like what exactly is discrimination under the law? Because it's, it's every time I hear an employer explain it to me or an HR representative, they kind of get it, but they really don't understand like the comparator or anything about like how it actually looks to us when you and I are analyzing, is there a risk of a discrimination case here? Do you kind of like uh, want to start us off with some thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, you know, in employment law, especially employment discrimination law, when you're dealing with someone who's a member of a protected class, so they could be um, someone, um, you know, that's maybe African-American or Asian or, or, or um, Indian or, you know, uh, they're of a different race or ethnicity or a protected class can also be gender. It can be um, disability and it can also be um, sexual orientation or um, gender identity, you know, um, did I cover them all, Trisha? <laughs> I, I think, think we, that's we have all our, the our re religion. Classes. Religion. Yes. Age. Age. I don't know if you mentioned national origin. National origin is another did. one. Yeah, I did. Yeah. So if they're a member of one of those protected classes and they allege that they've been discriminated against because of that class, then they've established a prima facie case of discrimination. And there's needs to be some type of adverse employment action. And the definition of that varies depending on where you are. Um, some places it's more strict. Um, here, it's, it's a more strict interpretation of that adverse employment action. Um, and then, of course, you know, the employer gets the ability to, to explain why they did what they did, why they took that um, adverse employment action or that that employment action is not adverse. That's another thing that employers can, can argue as well. Um, and then um, once the employer establishes that, then it's the employee's turn to come back and say, mm, no, that's not the real reason for the discrimination or the, the treatment. The real reason is, you know, da, 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 X, Y, C. Um, and here's my circumstantial evidence or direct evidence to show that what the employer is saying is simply not true. And we call that under the law pretext. So that is discrimination. And like I said, it can be based on a number of 
of reasons as long as that reason is covered um, under Title VII. Yeah, I I think uh, talking about the adverse action, and, and that's a lot of times it seems that the first thing that from the employer perspective um, that they may think about is firing someone they think, and which is certainly an adverse action. That's like a clear adverse action of, uh, you know, taking that step to letting someone go and not having them be employed anymore. But there's so much more than just firing someone and more than even just discipline. And it could be just treating someone differently um, in who gets promoted or how someone, um, even just in the hiring process, who gets hired and who doesn't. I mean, adverse action is, is you know, can like you said, it's defined in different jurisdictions differently. But in general, uh, there are a lot, there's a lot more, I think, to um, understanding it than just the termination or discipline issues. And there's, you know, creating a hostile work environment or what employees refer to as being harassed, you know, harassment. And, you know, um, those those types of situations, you know, the factors are a little bit different in terms of what's defined as a hostile work environment or harassment under the law. And then sexual harassment, of course, has its own um, criteria. But yeah, I mean, treating someone differently because of their protected class is essentially what discrimination is. I think, too, that when I have these conversations with non-lawyers, they think, well, I'm not a discriminatory person. Like I'm not discriminating against um, whether it's race or national origin or age. Like I don't have a problem with people that are older. You know what I mean? They'll say (laughs) these statements, you know, about this. Um, You know, I don't have any problem with women, you know, being in charge. I don't have any. And, And what's interesting is, is that's, really um not part of the analysis uh it's not not. (laughs) if 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 you're going around making comments like "Mm, karina's getting ready to go out on maternity leave or karina's at an interview and karina has a baby bump and you're like oh my god is she pregnant you know i'm saying she's pregnant she we can't hire her that means she's going to be out of here in six months we can't you know we're not going to hire her you know, so you've then discriminated against her because she's pregnant, um, which is really a, almost a dual classification because it could be gender and then it can be disability, you know. Um, and there's a series of cases on, you know, how in some jurisdictions, you know, being pregnant may be a uh, an exception to a certain um, extreme and extreme and outrageous conduct claims. Um, so, (laughs) so yeah, you have to be really careful because, um, people have made comments like, you know, Trisha's getting really old and, um, (laughs) Karina, she just can't keep up. She just can't keep up with the rest of the team. We've just got to lay them off, you know, and there's, and there's out of a problem with older people, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, they're judging, the person based on these perceived characteristics, you know, and those perceived characteristics are associated with their protected class. So yeah, no, Trisha is not old. She's younger than me, um, <laughs> you know, obviously, but I'm just <laughs> using us as examples so that I don't step on anybody's toes. Good, good, nobody's, idea, watching good idea, this and says, nobody's watching this and says, um, 
they represented me or <laughs> they were, Trisha <laughs> was the lawyer and, you know, who represented the employer in my case. And they talked about me on the podcast. Yeah. Good job. Good job, Karina. Keep us out of trouble here. We don't want to get yeah, in any trouble. <laughs> I'm risk averse. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, there are a lot of things to be mindful of and using the big D word, you know, discrimination, you know, everybody's like, Oh God, no, that's not me. But we have to be aware that we all have implicit biases. We all have um, a set of understandings that we see the world through, you know, filters that we see the world through. And they're based on our past experiences, the way that we were raised, you know, the, our environment, who we, who we know, who we've been exposed to. And so we develop those implicit biases, you know, based on all of those factors and then some. So we may not feel that we're a racist person, but we may have some biases that are, um, that show up in our decision-making when it comes to how we treat various employees. Yeah, I think that, because um, I have a psych background, I don't know if you knew that, Karina, but, uh, okay. um, <laughs> but you know, they talked a lot about, about this when I uh, took psychology way back when for law school. And um, just in the initial studies of psychology, that there's a natural uh, feel to go towards people that are similar to you. It's just, yeah. it's just some, you know, uh, a, it's just a part of uh, human beings that, you know, you know, if you see someone in the room or you're, you know, having a conversation with someone and they have something similar with you. And sometimes those similarities can be these sort of differential pr protected class areas where, mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you feel drawn to somebody. And I think it can sort of show up in interesting ways where you don't even realize that, that you're doing it, but that you tend to favor that person a certain way. Um, you may pick them in an interview over another person that has the same qualifications. And the only difference really is um, some other similarity. Again, uh, both of you are young or both of you um, uh, are of, um, of the same sex or that kind of thing and or the same race, um, you know, and those kinds of things, the differential between it and understanding that you know, people have different life experiences than you and that you um, may not be familiar with what their life experiences are. And just being aware of this sort of idea of an unconscious um, sort of bias that can be there and making sure that you understand the culture of the company that you work in and recognizing that um, it's important for your management to understand that that can happen too. So they can check themselves and really sort of be conscious that when they make decisions like, um, hey, you know what? I'm going to, you know, give Susie a raise. Well, why are you giving Susie a raise over Betty, right? And then mm -hmm. say, you say, okay, well, um, I just think Susie, she's a more go-getter. She, you know, and what you really don't realize is, okay, so why do you think Susie's a go-getter? And you push it a little farther and you really ask yourself and you realize, well, um, you know, Susie's maybe younger and Susie doesn't have kids yet. And so mm -hmm. she gets to work super early and you sort of start to, you know, in incorporate all these things into versus maybe Betty's a working mom. And so she's limited in the time that she can get there. But the work product is very similar, the same. And really it's just, you know, a perception thing. And it is hard mm -hmm. to get there. Um, uh, but I think it's something that understanding that other people have, um, different experiences and understanding that it's important to try to, as much as you can, um, recognize that 
that bias could be there and that you want to try to avoid it in the situation where you're making decisions that could be considered um, adverse situations, at least from our legal perspective. Right, Karina? Oh, yeah. And then there are cultural ones. You know, is Susie more open about her personal life? You know, but Betty's not because culturally you don't talk about your business. You know, you, you don't talk about home outside of home, you know. And so let's say Susie is a white female and Betty's a black female. Well, you know, Susie's a go-getter because she's more sociable and she's she's more willing to have these uh, conversations. She's more approachable, but Betty's not approachable because she's very private. Um, but like you said, they both have the same productivity, but that's a common one that I see, you know, is the cultural difference um, that a lot of times, you know, African-Americans don't um, share and divulge a lot of their personal private business in the workplace because that's the way they're raised and taught. You know, um, growing up, a lot of, you know, sometimes black children are said, hey, what happens here in this house? You don't go out and share it with other people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you keep yeah. home at home, you know, and so it's a little bit different. Um, the cultural differences dictate the way that an employee interacts with other um, co-workers and management at the job. And, and that's another thing to, to consider as well. It's not that, that, that one employee is a go-getter and the other's not. It's just that one is private culturally and the other one's not. <laughs> yeah. And um, it can happen that fast where you develop now the facts that uh, maybe Karina, uh, coming from the plaintiff's lawyer perspective, goes, hey, that's, that's a potential claim there. And so, um, you know, I also think about when I, when I, you know, you're looking like national origin claims and at least here down in Texas, we have, um, lots of different, um, a lot of Sp Spanish speaking, um, individuals that come, um, that come in and live in like some of our, you know, Houston and, and San Antonio, certainly, um, and the Hispanic community and, and they may not speak the best English and when they're in the workforce and they're speaking Spanish on their breaks, you know, uh, versus some of the other individuals that they work with maybe don't speak Spanish. There is a cultural sort of difference there between uh, potential people feeling either left out or maybe feeling like they may choose those individuals that, you know, don't speak um, English all the time and treat them differently. And I think you got to be real careful about mm -hmm. that. I feel like national origin claims get overlooked in that way. And there's um, certainly some risk there for the employer if they if they have a Spanish speaking or or even any multilingual um, uh, particular workforce. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so, so now we've talked a lot about discrimination. Let's talk before we move on this briefly about what the comparator is. Uh, do you want to explain that, Karina? So yeah, so when you look at people that are similarly situated, with that employee, you know, comparable um, position and level, um, you know, one of the things that is usually requested and produced in, in, a, in a lawsuit is the organizational chart, because we want to see who is um, similarly situated in terms of, of level and, and, and job, you know, responsibilities and that type of thing. So, um, if you're looking at, uh, if let's say using Susie and Betty again, if, if Susie and Betty are both, um, say, um, you know, uh, managers and they're managers at the same level and they supervise approximately the same number of employees and um, they're within the same maybe department, 
um, answer to the same person. You know, they're similarly situated. And because they're similarly situated, if they're being treated differently for consideration of promotions, um, if they're being treated treated differently for, you know, raises, um, disciplinary actions, um, all of those, and, and then it's going to look as if, you know, whether it's intended or not, it's going to look as if it's based on the protected class, if that's the only differentiating, differ, differing factor. Particularly, it's even more important when you have more than just two. So if you have a group of, within a department and, um, you know, only let's say that you get do the performance evaluations and only the, the African-American employees on that team, they all, nobody gets higher than a three out of five in a performance evaluation. And then, you know, the Caucasian employees get fours and fives, you know, so you would look at those types of, of, of um, comparisons just to see, are you treating a one group of employees differently than you're treating a group of employees, say within a protected class? Do they, are these group of employees that are treated differently, are they all part of the same class? Yeah, no, that's really well put. I couldn't couldn't have said it better myself, Karina. I think um, this goes back to the same discussion of you know when you know when someone's thinking, um, okay, and, and a lawyer's having a conversation with a non-lawyer about the, whether there's a discrimination case there, and they they're you know insisting, well, you know, we're not discriminatory. My management wasn't discriminatory when we made those decisions. It wasn't based on anything of one of these protected classes, but then at the same time, that's not really the legal evidence that you're presenting. And I've seen the, mm -hmm. the federal judges, um, you know, stand there in front of the lawyers um, uh, and say, um, you, what's the comparators? Tell me right mm -hmm. now, who are the comparators? And you're trying to explain to this federal judge, you know, that this person that they're saying, you know, um, got treated differently. Well, they're not a comparator. They're a different, a different um, level supervisor. They have, you know, two other additional degrees than this other person trying to distinguish the educational or the experience background in order to show on why they would maybe be treated differently, have a different salary or have different bonuses. Um, and, and that's the legal piece that we look at. And, and that's, but it translates back down to having an understanding that, Again, those feelings of whether or not you feel your management or you yourself have any sort of discrimination in these sort of protected categories isn't going to be what the judge is asking Karina for or asking me for in the defense for the employer or even for the prosecution for the employee to, to win the case. They're going to be looking at across the board. So I think relatively then smart practices, Karina, would lend itself that employers should be looking at it like that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, treat everybody the same, you know, create policies and procedures. This is best practices. You know, if you were to go to court, could you defend yourself? Could you win? If you're in North Carolina or Texas, it's very likely that you would, right? Because the laws are more employer friendly. However, do you really want to spend the time and energy and effort and money having to defend yourself? So establish best practices at policies, you know, and procedures that um, allow a supervisor or an employee, you know, a management level employee to um, implement these, you know, these promotions or, you know, the evaluations across the board, you know, if it's an incentive pay, you know, bonus or something, create a formula. 
so that everybody is treated the same regardless. You know, when you leave everything in the manager's discretion, then more of those implicit biases come into play. You know, those biases that we are born with, as Trisha said, you know, the, we're naturally drawn to certain things and certain people because of our similarities. You know, we're more, your, your manager or supervisor is less likely to do that if your performance evaluation has very detailed criteria and it's not an arbitrary process, it's not subjective, but it's objective. You know, it, it's it's funny when um, I'm negotiating with the with the opposing counsel, and they'll make statements like, "Well, it's not apples and oranges, really." You know, yeah, or we're we're talking about apples and oranges here. You know, it's not it's you know we're not compare. It's not the same comparison. These are is different. You know, but it shouldn't be <laughs> apples and oranges. It should be oranges of different size. You know. <laughs> <laughs> or so like you're trying to use this fruit thing. I've heard yeah. that fruit one as well. It's apples and oranges. It's totally different. You know what I mean? No. Um, it, all employees at the same level should all be oranges, just different size and hues. <laughs> <laughs> and different levels you of sweetness. Marina. <laughs> different levels of sweetness. That's all. You know, <laughs> they need to be yeah. all be oranges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, um, it needs to, needless to say, the judge isn't going to care about. It. I mean, you, I've heard that argument made to judges. It's apples and oranges. It's totally different. Like you know, <laughs> and that's the job, right? That's the job of the lawyer to defend the employer to say it's they're not comparators. They come, but the more the evidence leans that way, uh, you'd be real, real careful. I mean, this starts all the way back from when you're in the hiring process. You don't have a consistent way of how you're hiring people. You're already going to lend yourself um, to be in hot water in this situation because it's very easy. Um, in a hiring process with those short amount of time, especially if you're, you know, you're not doing multiple interviews, because say they're not even like high level positions, right? Um, where, you know, you maybe, maybe you have a brief phone interview or, or the HR person has a phone interview and then the person that's going to be ending up supervising them has an in-person interview or something to that extent. Not a lot of time to make these decisions. And that's where I really see problems can start with the hiring process where you don't, you don't have a structure so already it's going to be natural for people to um, to tend to pick people that have similar backgrounds with them. And this could even be uh, just people, again, um, you know, that have an educational background that's different from you know, that's similar to you and um, but not different or less than another type. It's just a, the same kind of thing. And and that's all kind of part of this process. And that can also happen in these choices of who's going to get what bonus, like the discretionary bonus is like, I think probably every plaintiff lawyer loves that where it's like, mm -hmm. they're making decisions about bonuses with nothing written down and, mm -hmm. and like a nowhere land. It's like a canvas of, well, why'd you get, and then by the time that you may even see a claim from the EOC, it could be months after those decisions are made and they have yeah. no real basis for them. What, what exactly, um, is an employer exposing themselves to, you know, if those decisions aren't made on something that's really structured. Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's always the, um, who you're going to promote, which I think is a tricky one, um, because there's a lot that goes into promotion, um, in the thought process. But if you, if you can develop on an employer side, really legitimate business reasons for why these individuals are ones being promoted and ones not, Mm -hmm. Um, I think, but I think the, the non, the, the termination, I feel like, and the non-promotion of individuals, those are, are usually, um, pretty common, 
adverse actions that lead them lead uh, employers to be in discrimination lawsuits. Absolutely. You know, again, establish some type of protocol um, and procedure for promotions and criteria, you know, that you're looking for. You know, sit down, have a meeting with, with supervisors and say, what are the qualifications or the qualities that you see in a person that 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 does well in this position? You know, what would you like to see? And and make that the criteria. You know, when you're inter- doing the interviews, have multiple people in the interview, let it not just be one person making the decision. Let it be multiple people or at least the input of multiple people. Um, you know, that helps too, because then you can say, the employer can say, well, you know, the decision wasn't made by the supervisor alone. Like maybe, maybe there was a committee that narrowed down the candidates and then the supervisor made the final decision, you know, or, you know, maybe that final decision had to be endorsed by, um, someone in their, in their chain of command or by HR. Maybe HR needs to take a look at it and make sure that, that things were followed, um, you know, and that's the way that a lot of government entities do it. You know, they have established protocols and they have a chain of command to make sure that it's not just one person who is showing favoritism or, or bias against, you know, another. Yeah. And that's a really good point. I, I think, um, I think there's a, there's a lot of things that the employer could consider doing to try to address these issues. And it's, it's not, um, it's not that um, difficult to start to implement those. And in some way, uh, you and I had been talking offline before we uh, started this podcast episode about implicit bias training and um, exploring diversity and inclusion training. And what does that look like? How do you bring that into a conversation, especially with, you know, how high charge some of the conversations can be surrounding these issues? Um, Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that, Karina? Yeah, there are, there are a lot of companies and, you know, consultants that do diversity and inclusion training. Um, you know, one thing that could be done is maybe having that type of training for, you know, company wide and then having a consultant come in and work with, you know, your executives, your supervisors, um, and, and just, you know, glean some of these, you know, run some of these policies or have them work side by side with you on implementing some of these policies. Um, but yeah, you know, having a one day training or one day workshop on diversity inclusion is great because it opens the eyes of the employees, but long-term, you know, if this is, if you have developed a culture of favoritism, you know, or, you know, favoritism, treating people that, that you have more in common with treating them better, um, then there needs to be a change in culture. And, you know, that change in culture would happen over time, not just from a one day workshop. Maybe you can, you know, engage that diversity and inclusion person to come in maybe once a quarter or once a month or, you know, and just to to be able to um, help show, you know, how we all have, you know, these, these biases and how just because we have these biases doesn't make us horrible people. It doesn't necessarily make us racist. It just means that we're human, you know, and we naturally have these implicit biases. Everyone has them. Um, and so, yeah, I think those types of things are important. Um, and, you know, there's also, there's a lot going on, you know, in our world right now 
um, you know, we're here at the time where we just received, you know, the verdict of the police officer um, who murdered George Floyd. And so death after death after death at the hands of police officers, you have a lot of people in the African-American community who are suffering a lot of trauma. And that trauma is from, you know, these series of events and other things that they've experienced. So, you know, depending upon the size of your company, these kinds of conversations may come up. And if they do come up and you decide that you want to address them at the workplace and you want to create a forum for it at the workplace, then make sure that you have, you know, some mental health professionals there. You know, you've got a diversity inclusion person there to help foster this discussion if people want to be involved in it. I think that should be something that would be optional because they, you know, you don't want to force someone into a, a conversation like that. Um, but diversity inclusion training in and of itself doesn't get into particular, you know, examples of things that are necessarily going on in the media right now. You know, it's a very, um, a general, you know, training. It's not dealing with current politics or, or you know, or current uh, events. Typically, it it may the need for them to come into that workplace may be triggered by the current events. But um, and a, a certified diversity inclusion trainer is going to come in and talk about you know generally the topics and they're 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 educators. Um, so. You know, just keep that in mind. Like I said, I the way that things are going right now um, with the most recent um, trial is that that is getting a little political because they're looking at changing the laws. So, you know, I would discourage, you know, you from having those type of discussions or a lot, you know, having a structured discussion at the workplace. But if you are going to have it, make sure that you have the proper professionals in place because you really need to realize, recognize that this is a, this is a traumatic experience for a lot of people. And a lot of people have experienced, you know, trauma just in witnessing these things happen, whether they saw it themselves or whether they saw it on the video, um, you know, that had been released um, or, you know, so just keep that in mind, you know, um, and everyone is not um, qualified in everything, you know, as supervisors and managers, you often find yourself being a counselor of your employees. You find yourself being an educator, a teacher, a trainer, mentor. However, with situations like this, you really want to make sure that you have professionals in place if those discussions are going to take place at the workplace. Yeah, I think, um, again, yeah, I mean, certainly with um, the little background I do have in psychology and like, um, you know, my familiarity with um you know, people that are more professional to be able to have these discussions so that, you know, you don't want to create an issue where people are saying things, not thinking they get emotional. And, um, you know, it's instead of diffusing the situation by creating a safe space, you're creating more of an issue in the workplace. So I think it would be something very thoughtful if you were going to um, get involved with that and have those discussions. And I think you would, you would probably, like you said, Karina, something that you would explore if there was a need for it in the culture that you currently have, that you feel like those discussions need to have that space, um, which is probably like on a case-by-case -case scenario, depending on what's going on with that employer and what's going on with that workforce. There's a lot of employers out here that, um, you know, they're scared to have these discussions, um, or they certainly 
um, are not really sure how to have these discussions, even if they want to provide some space. And it may be, like you said, the, the best place to start would be just to um, have a certified person that comes in and does some type of diversity inclusion training, which usually is more diffused and isn't discussing like um, the actual um, incidents that are maybe in the press and more just talking about the recognition of how individuals have different backgrounds and uh, understanding how that plays into decision-making in the workforce and making more thoughtful decisions and treating people um, in a more equal um, fashion when you're making those decisions. Uh, certainly, if you have never had those kind of conversations in your workforce, <laughs> you wouldn't just want to have like a lunchroom break and be like, let's just chat it out. Um, I'm not saying you couldn't do that, but it could be, it could go bad. <laughs> like Karina's like shaking her head. Like uh, I it can go bad really fast, like bananas, you know, it, it just can really go, it can go bad really fast. So I would say definitely, you know, it, it, avoid having group discussions unless you have some, you know, mental health or trauma specialists there and, you know, diversity inclusion, a more structured approach would be start, you know, like Trisha and I said, start with a diversity inclusion training and, you know, just meet with that person and see what they would recommend, you know, tell them what's going on at the, at your company and what the current culture is and how you would like to change it. And they can help you with that. So definitely do your homework, do your research, um, get references and recommendations from other companies. Um, because, you know, you want someone experienced, especially right now. You don't want to just, you know, just hire someone just for the sake of saying, yeah, we did an diversity and inclusion training um, for an hour and we're good. You know, punch in the clock. We did it. You know, check off the list. <laughs> yeah, I um, I can agree. Like, I think if you don't have any idea whether you would need this or not, I think then that then you probably at that point, you just need to sort of get a pulse uh, for the culture of what's going on in your company. And so sometimes it's like, um, it's like with children, you know, they're always watching their parents, like, um, and what the parents do versus what they say may make a bigger difference. Um, so just opening yourself up to being a company that is going to have diversity and inclusion um, training can let them know how you're setting the tone for the expectation in the company that you're trying to create a culture where people are going to feel valued um, and that they're going to feel that their differences um, add value and not make them um, less likely to be successful in the company. And I think if yeah. you can start there, I think that that would be um, a good place to go and let everyone know and get your management management on board with that whole culture as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a strange time, you know, that we're in. We're, um, you know, over a year into a pandemic, um, going into a year and a half. Um, we are, you know, having, you know, racial volatility in our country. And, you know, people are tired of all of it. You know, people are having cabin fever, they're ready to get out. And then you've got, you know, the vaccine that's out and there's concerns about some of the vaccines or one of the vaccines. There's a lot going on in our country right now. And so, you know, if you can do, you know, as an employer, you know, 
um, if you can make things as smooth and as seamlessly as possible, then it can keep you out of, out of court, keep you from having to respond to a legal letter from a lawyer, keep you from having to respond to the EEOC or the Department of Labor. And, you know, just understand that because of all of the tension, you know, that people have, the, the stress, the, um, the effects that, that everyone, not I won't say everyone, but the effects of the pandemic you know, it doesn't, that doesn't discriminate. People are affected by the pandemic, regardless of their, their gender, their race, their socioeconomical, you know, status, their, um, their age, people are affected. So this is a tough time for everyone. And as much as you, as you can do to make sure that people feel valued in your company, the happier that they'll be, the more that they'll have your back, the less likely they'll be to sue you. You know, I've had um, employees come in and say, if they had just said sorry, or if they had just said thank you, or if they just acknowledged all of the work that I did for the company, I would not have even called you. Yep. You know, yep. so it goes a long way. You know, best practices um, are there to, to, to save you money at the end of the day from having to defend yourself. You know, I'm sure it doesn't help Tricia and I in terms of our revenue, but it helps you in terms of, of your revenue and in, in keeping your profit because you're not spending a ton of money and defending these things um, constantly. So if you've had... If you've had more than one employee make allegations within, you know, a year, you know, if you're a small business or a quarter, <laughs> depending upon how large your small business is, um, you know, you you really should reevaluate your policies and procedures, run them by an attorney, um, consult with a diversity and inclusion trainer, educator, specialist. And rework things, you know, because we're having to to read. Um, we're all having to reinvent ourselves in this pandemic. We're all having to shift. We're all having to to change and rewrite our policies. So take advantage of this time to to do that. And like I said, don't think for a minute that this pandemic is the only problem. Because I've had more people come to me. Probably I don't know if this is the um, incentive, the uh, uh, coronavirus relief payments and stimulus checks or tax refunds or whatever, but I've had more employees come to me for discrimination-related claims, and um, you know, don't think that people won't sue you in a pandemic because they will. So the more that you can do to make your employees feel like you're not treating favoring one child over the other. You know, um, you're not, you know, saying, well, you let them do it. You let them get away with it, mom and dad. How come I can't do it? You let them do it. I was uh, the only girl in my house. I had three brothers. I was the only girl and I was treated differently. And my brothers could do more things than I could do. And, you know, my dad was very old school and he would say, well, you can get pregnant. They can't. 
<laughs> well, there you go, Karina. <laughs> so they they intentionally discriminated against me in terms of the, you know, what I was able to do, the privileges that I got or did not get because I was a girl. And, and that's, thinking, that's not uncommon. <laughs> yeah, that's for your own protection, right? Is it? Can't, I mean, can't my brothers get somebody pregnant too, right? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times, and that's the point, you know, a lot of times we're raised with these understandings of what's right and what's wrong, and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Take those same beliefs to the workplace and you're treating, you grow up thinking that it's okay to treat girls and boys differently. So when you go to the workplace, you treat girls, girls and boys differently because they're wired different. Because we are different. Girls and boys, men and women, we are different. But is it appropriate to treat them differently in the workplace? And it is not. It is well, not unless there are certain situations where, you know, and even that's, I'm thinking of family medical leave or, you know, maternity leave, but men still are entitled to that time. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that this isn't like, if you haven't, I, I think if you haven't started having conversations um, with your management about the culture that you have in the company and what it is currently, the status and where it's going. And certainly a lot of cultures have drastically changed over the last year, like you're bringing up. There's a lot more stress already um, going on. And then on top of that, we've got some hybrid um, or fully telework or there are, there's been a mix. Um, there's been people that have been sick, then people that have been taking leave, people doing all these different things, and there's resentment between the employees. And mm -hmm. so, um, but don't, I think the best thing, um, my thought would be is don't be discouraged that if you haven't had these conversations with culture, that it's lost, there's always somewhere to start. And the first place to start is sort of get a feel for what you're and the best place to figure that out is usually talking to your managers. Um, and, and figuring out what they've seen, because they may not have shared everything with you. They, you know, their job is to, you know, um, to try to handle some of these matters. And when you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, you can have a better understanding of what's going on with these employees, you know, mm -hmm. um, and then you can start to figure out what steps do we want to take. But I think um, that is certainly where the times are going is to have an understanding that a lot of things that lead your, yourself to getting involved with a discrimination lawsuit, having Karina bring one of these uh, <laughs> awful claims against you. And um, it, it 20, starts, 25 page complaint. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's the way she, what she's looking for is, you know, the sexy appeal of the really bad culture, the culture that doesn't, you know, everyone turned a blind eye and they all kind of sort of thought, well, that was a one-off or that was a whatever. And they didn't really realize that the, the culture lent itself to some of these things, these statements being made and it being okay, or, or people being treated differently or people being, um, you know, given um, the opportunity to move up in the company and not really having an understanding of whether or not people are being treated the same. And that's the first place I think you have to start is go, what do we know about the culture currently and where do we want to go? So we can avoid ever getting any sort of letters or lawsuits from Karina. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the red flags, I would say, are high turnover rate. If, if, if there are, if, if employees are leaving or being fired left and right, 
there's something wrong with the culture, especially if it's concentrated around one or two, uh, you know, a few managers, you know, and it, I just, I, it uh, amazes me how these companies allow these bad managers to stay. Yeah, I know there's a bad manager defense, but, you know, it just amazes me how they allow them to stay and they keep defending them and protecting them, but it's a cultural problem. It may not just be a manager problem. It, it could be a cultural problem, you know, a culture of within the company, not saying that an individual employee has a different culture than say right. the majority of the employee, other employees. I'm talking about what Trish is talking about, culture of the organization, yeah. you know, or, or culture within that department you know, supervisor, manager, director of department H has a, you know, 50% turnover rate, 60% turnover rate. And then you've got departments that have a 25% turnover rate. It, you know, is something wrong? Yeah. I mean, usually, and sometimes, I mean, even I'm sure Karina, when you've read the facts of some of these really egregious, or maybe you've gotten one yourself, but these egregious lawsuits that are very, very extensive in the facts of, of whether it's sexual harassment or some other type of discrimination or retaliation. Um, it's not, it's not one person knew about it in management. It's more than one person, which is then lending itself that, that there was some piece of the culture, at least in a part of the company that had failed. Um, and had and and because of that crack, um, it resulted in um, you know behaviors that added up to be um, you know very illegal under all the Title Seven protections mm -hmm. and everything, lending itself to awful lawsuits uh, that yeah. employers really want to avoid. So um, and the poor treatment of employees that just isn't it isn't a good idea for you to um, to not be looking at the whole picture. So I think I mean I think we've talked about everything we want to talk about. Is there anything else you want to add before? Uh, I try to get you to do the legal skinny rundown again. Oh, no, let's do the legal skinny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you want to hear the original rundown that Karina did, you can go again, go back to the um, to the other episode that we did with with each other. But for this for this one, I've added some new questions. So Karina, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Which one of these activities would most entice you to attend a corporate or company retreat? A off-the-grid, remote, Caribbean rainforest, jungle, meditation retreat. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> yeah. I, I put so many words in there. Okay, B, a Texas ranch with horses, barn dancing, Texas barbecue, and craft beer. Um, C, an Alaska salmon fishing trip where you probably will get uh, – Get dirty and covered in fish guts. No, I don't know. Uh, but it, <laughs> I love fishing. And then D, a foodie tasting with wine pairings. What, which one would you pick, Karina? Okay. I'd pick all the above, but the order would be C. I'd want to do the salmon fishing first, you know, get a little nice. action in there. Um, then followed by um, D. And D was the um, foodie tasting with foodie wine pairings. tasting. Yeah. Total extremes, <laughs> opposites. Then the me meditation in the Caribbean remote off the grid place, and then end with the Texas uh, dancing and beer and all of that because that's the party, like that's the fun. You know? <laughs> so and end with the fun. So that's what I would say. All those sound appealing. If I had to choose one, I'd probably go with the off the grid Caribbean uh, meditation retreat. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool, right? 
<laughs> I would have picked you to pick the fooding tastings, but I, I'm glad I'm glad I, I got it straight now. I can see. I would not have seen you go fishing, but um, you, oh, you, yeah. you, always, you always surprise me, Karina. <laughs> I was raised by a country boys, so that's one thing that I was allowed to do with the boys is go fishing. Go fishing. And I was there we good, go. Too. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. I love to fish as well. So, all right. Okay. What's the most interesting book that you've read in the last year, or what are you currently reading? I'm reading Truth by Susan Batson. She's a legendary acting coach and I'm, you know, taking acting classes with her studio. Um, I'm increasing my, you know, my acting craft and prioritizing my acting career right now. So, which I forgot to, did I talk about that in my intro? I don't think I did. I didn't I don't talk think about you did. I'm an actress. Yeah, I'm actress. So um, Truth by Susan Batson. Interesting. Okay. On that note, if this, this question is certainly appropriate, then if Hollywood makes your life into a movie, if you could choose who would play you, which actor uh, would you choose? I would have to say Carrie Washington. She resonates with me quite a bit. And I think she can, she, she, they can do her hair and makeup to kind of, you know, resemble me a little bit, I think. <laughs> I love that. I think so. Totally. <laughs> She's awesome. Uh, excellent actress as well. But okay. And then in one minute or less, what's the legal skinny on discrimination and implicit bias in the workplace? All right. Be proactive, not reactive. Know your limitations. Hire experts, consultants, um, professionals certified in the area of diversity and inclusion have um, a connection to mental health professionals if and when you need that to address any trauma that may have taken place at the workplace or that employees may be dealing with. Um, some of the um, employee assistance programs have, have that as a resource as well. So just be proactive, you know, not reactive. I love it. Okay. And if someone wants to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? The best way is to start with my website. That is um, thelemonslawfirm.com. Uh, lemons is spelled with one M. And make sure you put that S on the end. So thelemonslawfirm.com. And you'll also see links on there in the Medium Publications to um, The Legal Skinny and the other podcasts that you know I've been a part of. And I thank you so much for listening to us today. Hope you've been able to learn something and, and get something useful out of it. Oh, every time I get to have you on and we get to collaborate, I, I really enjoy it. Your perspective is, um, it's in, it's just so valuable. Um, and I, I just thank you so much for coming back on again with me. Thank you for having me. And that is Legal Skinny on discrimination and implicit bias training in the workplace. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Legal Skinny Podcast. I would love for you to go to www.legalskinny.com forward slash review to learn the super simple way to leave me a review to tell me which topics and guests you like. I value your thoughts and your review helps me support more company leaders just like you to grow as a leader themselves and to grow successful teams. I also drop the link in the show notes if that's easier for you. And while you're there, check out all the other resources I have for you as a company leader. 
And don't forget, our disclaimer to remember, legal skinny is for entertainment and informational purposes only, not meant to provide legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Laws change or they differ by jurisdiction. So also remember, this is not a substitute for seeking legal counsel in your jurisdiction on the current law applicable to you.